Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to the Umrapreneur podcast. On this very special episode, I'm so excited to bring you this very special guest. And you know what I do, I bring you guests from all walks of life, from all backgrounds to really shed a light on entrepreneurship, on business, and really help you understand what are the strategies that you can implement in your life as a business owner, as an entrepreneur to level up and really get to where you want to be. And with me, I have a very special person to help you do that. It is brother Kharid Hawladar. And I hope I pronounced that correctly, who is a a partner and an angel investor at a firm called Accreditus, as well as a chairman of the board at Marhaba DeFi, as well as a senior managing director at a company called Fleming & Co. So I want to really just dive into all of that with you, Brother Khalid, understand what you do in all of these different spaces. I know there's a lot of experience here that we can tap into, so I'm going to have to be selective, but hopefully we can extract as much information today as possible. So Jazakallah Khair for joining me. I'm really excited. They're fantastic. Um, really love the opportunity and thank you. And definitely. And one, one place that I do want to start is when I see someone like yourself, right? I won't lie. There's a little part of me that's like, you know what? After I go through this whole entrepreneurship thing where I'm in the grind, I'm actually out here building the business. One day, I think I like to step back and just kind of, you know, be the investor, be the chairman, be the person, you know, behind the scenes. For you specifically, in your journey and through your experience, what does it really take to become someone that takes on that role? I'm very curious. And I think this is a selfish question, but I think people will be curious as well. Sure. Um, so look, I, I would not have originally classified myself as a, a pro-risk venture type of person. If anything, I'm probably more risk averse, glass half empty. And if you look at my sort of quote career before six years ago, it's pretty, I would say, vanilla, you know, um, uh, uh, child of immigrant, hardworking parents, education, 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 uh, undergrad and, and post uh, uh, and postgrad at Imperial London Business School. So, you know, tick the box education, worked in Credit Suisse, uh, worked at the defining part was 15 years at Moody's. So up mm -hmm. until that point, I'm quite. I won't say boring, but I'm, I'm just quite a sort of middle of the road corporate guy working my way up the ladder. And then about uh, six years ago, I, I reached a point in my career where either I just carry on on this path and just head all the way up into seniority. Or at that point, I was relatively, in terms of my personal life, relatively free of liabilities, didn't have kids, etc. So I was able to take risk. And that's just that's the first sort of lesson I'd say, you know, it's much easier to take risk at a relatively younger age when you don't have responsibilities and you can fail at a younger age without responsibilities than you can at a later age. And I think that risk tolerance is something that's quite important. And so I set up my own consulting advisory firm in my space, which is credit ratings, credit risk. And again, that's very institutional, old school financial markets, nothing particularly exciting. But I then started investing in startups, um, uh, fintech, Islamic economy. Um, I had a background. Um, I was global head of Islamic finance at Moody's. I know a lot about that space. Um, I've done stuff like uh, psychedelic mental health uh, and now into crypto as well as halal food. So it's a bit of an eclectic portfolio, to be honest. The main theme is um, I'm attracted to innovation and impact. Is mm -hmm. there some 
is there some angle that um uh you know can have an impact on society and it's not just about roi or, or returns um but my institutional background i think has served me quite well because i i have this kind of discipline so a combination of kind of starting when I'm older meant I was sort of applying a discipline to my investments. And again, because, well, I was relatively free of uh, um, uh, responsibilities, I was able to invest in startups. And I suddenly realized I was a lot more entrepreneurial and pro-risk than I thought. Because some of the stuff I was investing in, um, you know, was very early stage stuff. And I've learned a few lessons. I've got failures. I've got middle of the road. I've got successes. Um, and over the last six years, my career to get to where I am today has evolved in a way where, um, going back to your original question, and apologies for going the long way around, I think my institutional background gives me a very solid foundation of discipline. And that set me up in a way that now that I'm working with ventures and startups, I'm the sort of seasoned guy, the conservative guy. You know, it's the venture guys who are all optimists, dreamers. You know, I'm the guy who comes in and says, no, 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 that, that's not going to work. Or have you thought about that? I'm, you know, at Marhaba, they initially nicknamed me the chief negative officer um, in, a, <laughs> in, a, in a kind of friendly way because I just keep blowing up people's ideas. So to, to, to wrap up or recap, that institutional foundation of education plus career got me to a certain point and I was able to transpose that institutional knowledge and education into the venture space. And um, I think that's worked out quite mm. well for me. And the last thing, I mean, look, I have a bit of a niche, um, Middle East, uh, Islamic finance, uh, fintech crypto, um, but I'm not like a crypto bro or anything. I'm the old school guy who still believes in crypto and that's a nice confluence of ideas. Mm -hmm. There's so many questions that I have for you that I want to dive into, but I, I think one yeah. place that I do want to start is, you know, you kind of, I would say glanced over that phase in your life where you transitioned from corporate to investor. And I just want a little bit more details there for our listeners that are watching this, that are maybe curious themselves of wanting to invest in startups. Maybe they have a little bit of wealth sitting around and they don't want to invest in any stocks that they might deem to be haram. They want to invest in Muslim entrepreneurship or just entrepreneurship in general. What was the transition that you had to take? I know now you're, we are, as you mentioned, you are a partner and uh, and founder really at the firm Accreditus. Did you, do you need a firm to invest in startups? Do you need this official organization where you're positioning yourself as a venture capital or can you just say, hey, I'm a, I'm a solo investor going into this? Yeah, honestly, it wasn't my plan. Um, mm. I mean, I think I've, uh, I've got over 10 investments in startups and now because my bandwidth has shrunk i go more into funds let's say but how did it start well firstly it starts from a position that you have some liquidity or cash around and then as part of a rational portfolio approach uh you know uh, equities um i'm not a fan even from a non-sharia perspective credit bonds yield the returns are so sort of negligible it just mm -hmm. wasn't worth it so I'm pretty much heavily invested in US tech equities and so on. But um, venture capital is probably the most sort of Sharia compliant halal thing you can do. It's so 
core to the ethos of Islamic finance that you invest, you don't lend, you know, real economy businesses. So um, it just happened through my network that um, somebody was setting up a business or launched a project. And because it was um, the very first one was uh, uh, halal ready to eat meals. So yeah. very non-tech, very non, you know, non-cutting edge, but um, it was something that I felt was uh, had a social good. There was some innovative technology involved in terms of this stuff was shelf stable for two years. And I thought, you know, let me put some money into it. That was my first sort of venture. And then at a conference, I met a guy doing some really ex uh, exciting stuff in fintech. And this was Blossom Finance, Microfinance, and small tickets initially. But it usually came through a person. I wasn't systematically looking at portfolios. I met a person who was either inspirational or doing something powerful. And I thought, let me put a small amount into that. And so it wasn't, I would say, a particularly disciplined approach. Um, I just kind of fell into it. But then the more I did and the more you got out there, the more people I met. And I was just putting small investments into these things. And then I started upping the ones that were working upping my stakes and then it just kind of grew from there so i don't think you need to be this structured person that says i'm going to do venture capital and nowadays there are a lot of platforms where you can sort of get together with other investors and sort of almost free ride on the back of other people who frankly know what they're doing i actually wouldn't recommend my approach of doing it solo initially mm -hmm. um there's a lot of skill set involved find a, one of these groups, one of these crowdfunding and get in with a, a bunch of people who know what they're doing, coast along, learn from them. And then, you know, you, you sort of carry each other. But yeah. there's a lot of, I would say, Islamic uh, VC groups, platforms, people getting into this space. Uh, and so I'd recommend find some friends, do it together and leverage like-minded people for that investment goal. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate those uh, those tips that you shared just now. And one question that I do have for you as well, you mentioned before this podcast, before we press record, we were talking about the potential of emerging markets versus developed markets. You were just telling me that you prefer to look at markets like the Middle East, whereas I was actually responding to you that wouldn't it make more sense for a business to actually target developed countries where they could afford to pay higher prices, which would lead to higher profit margins. Now, I'm looking at this probably from the perspective of a product or service-based business, so one where you're actually selling you know, something, whether tangible or not, um, for a fee. But of course, if we are looking at tech, if we're looking at other sectors, then that question and answer also might vary. For you specifically, what guides you to really focus on emerging markets? What is your methodology or what is your approach? Sure. So let, let me clarify, because um, I have a kind of portfolio career where, you know, my day job is um, advisory, credit advisory. And it's that side of things that pulled me to the Middle East, because for lack of a better word, developed markets are saturated with talent, smart people. It's hyper competitive. And in addition to be, let's say, less competitive in emerging markets i think the opportunities for growth um competition makes it more favorable and that was let's say more my professional background in mm. terms of my investments actually um it's a mixed bag between emerging and developed 
because um, you can invest on the basis of a pitch deck or a story. But as I've discovered, whatever you thought you were investing in at that time, based on that pitch deck, by the time it either gets to failure or success, it's probably churned three times the business model, the people, you know, lots of things are changing. So a startup is not like a corporate, a static animal that is doing a constant develop, even though they might pitch this plan and this roadmap and stuff. No, no, no. There's all sorts of stuff going on. And what I've worked out, actually, I go through people trust. So as long as there's one person who's in my sort of first circle of trust at that firm, I then will go deeper. And in terms of my portfolio, I've got stuff in Canada, UK, Indonesia, Australia. And in terms of startup investing, it's actually a bit less risky to go for the mature markets, mostly because of rule of law. Mm -hmm. um, as a small investor, you'll kind of be protected getting into a startup venture in London or UK, et cetera, or Canada, et cetera. The Middle East, I feel a bit more cautious in terms of property rights, protection, and so on. And that's a bit of my glass half empty thinking coming through. So um, uh, I'm much more comfortable at early stage investing in mature markets than emerging. So a bit of a, mm. a split. My professional is EM, but my investing is wherever I find the right person. And then from the person, I think about the market. Did you ever think of yourself that you would become, when you first began on this journey and transitioned towards investment, did you think that this would become really your life's work right now? You, as you mentioned, you are chairman of the board at Marhaba Defi. Um, you have been running Accreditus now for over five years. Did you anticipate this? Did you intentionally pursue this path or was it something that happened? No, no, no. So look, here's another piece of advice, right? Spend the first half of your career um, broadening your funnel of mm -hmm. experience because you graduate, you might be a, a graduate in one discipline or another, but you're actually quite narrow. And either you're a person who stays on that narrow path and just accelerates from level to level to level and you push on through. And if you're a, a high performer, by the time you're in your mid 40s, you'll be a managing director and doing quite well. Or um, if you're not quite sure, you just want this vertical path. I, I sort of, even within my career, I was a tech guy at the beginning, and then I worked in um, structured finance, and then I did Islamic finance, and then banks. Um, I did all this different stuff, and I was thinking, am I losing momentum every time I change? Mm. Because somebody who stuck, stuck on one path was going ahead further, and then, Khalid, you keep flipping around to different things. Are you losing momentum and i always had this internal debate with myself um so spend the first half of your career for me broadening that sort of sphere experience so the first let's say 15 20 years and then use that to narrow in the other direction so then with this broad flash of experience that has then led me to discover the things i like more mm -hmm. importantly what am i actually good at um, which is very important. Play to your strengths. Don't try and do things that are not your natural fit. And I had never thought I was going to be an active angel investor the way that I am. It didn't even cross my mind six years ago. That's how recently. And then 
Um, just through the network expansion, just through the opportunities I perceive in tech and crypto, because of my original tech background, um, I think there's huge potential in tech, both for society on an impact level and both from a profits and P&L type of level. So it suits me. And um, uh, it's almost like an accidental plan of, of, of sort of going where mm-hmm. I seem to be strong and I seem to have a network. So just by following the strengths that I built up in the first half, and then maybe I'm over the next few years, I might narrow on one or the other. But at the moment, I'm enjoying this portfolio career. It's a lot more mental overhead, but the variety of my work is just is, is great. I'm enjoying it a lot. Yeah, definitely. And one question that I have for you um, that, I'm, that I'm really curious about, because for people who would like to transition to this role eventually or are interested in, in this world of, of angel investing. One of the things that I know, when you look at least at the venture capital firms of Silicon Valley and what we're used to, is that these are firms that are generally placing bets on these startups and really hoping that they're going to grow and eventually go public where they can then you know reap the benefits and they can you know their shares can actually monetize. Now, when you approach this with startups yourself, I'm curious to know if this is the same strategy where you are really kind of betting on, and I'm not betting in the way of gambling, but you're really kind of setting them up for success where you want that business to get to the point where it either goes public or it gets bought out by a bigger company. And then you can recoup um, essentially the shares that you have uh, within that company. Is that how it works for you? Or is there a different methods that you've seen with smaller firms to kind of be more sustainable? Yeah. So look, um, uh, again, as a non-professional, I can't say I'm doing it the right way. So, um, but for me, I just figured um, if you're invested in a firm that's creating value of some form, your returns will come at some stage. Now, whether that's because you get bought out in an acquisition, an IPO is probably quite aspirational, but one yeah. of my investments actually listed in, in Canada on the TSXV. Um, and so that's the sort of success story. But I don't have this um, ROI focus where I'm trying to say, oh, I've got to make at least 30% a year. As long as the trend is in the right direction, I think, okay, inshallah, um, at some point, this will be monetized. Now, it's Mm -hmm. very important you don't invest uh, money that you may need, right? So for me, it's the 80-20 approach to the portfolio. You know, um, there's a cash element. The bulk of it is in liquid us and you know um i have you know uh, shopify unfortunately in my portfolio tech stocks etc that's been um, rough lately <laughs> but, but, but these yeah. are like relatively liquid yeah. and then the maximum is sort of 10 to 15 percent of my disposable cash in venture because i've got no idea when it's going to become liquid um and then the last thing i've sort of started adding crypto etc so make sure the money that you invest in this space is money that you don't need in terms of a time horizon. And the, and also, um, I, rightly or wrongly, tend to go deep rather than wide. So that means I can't afford to take this shotgun approach where I make 20 investments and hope that one of them pays off and covers off the others. And because I go deep, I tend to try to work with the founders, um, advisory board positions, board positions, CEO advisor, because I'm almost so much protecting my interest 
in that way. And so um, it's a narrow approach, but because I, I have a much deeper understanding of that business, mm-hmm. potentially it's less risky. So far, it's working out for me, but I couldn't tell you with a, a high degree of confidence if that's a replicable strategy for everyone. It's just the way right. that it's happened for me as the accidental angel investor in a way. Okay, I understand. Now, one direction that I do want to take this conversation is your role with uh, RJ Fleming and Co. Right, as a senior managing director, you mentioned you are the head of credit in Sukuk. Now, when I when I read this this uh, this word Sukuk, I'm thinking of like the Arabic word Sukh, which is market. I don't know if that's related to it at all. What is what is the head of credit in Sukuk? No, design? no, no. What do you so, do? Um, Sukuk, I, I could be way off. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. So um, and look, it's it, it's. Uh, um, how do I explain it? Like, there's just, they're, they're, like if you think about the bond market, mm-hmm. is the Arabic equivalent of a bond of a corporate bond. Got it. And um, it, the market's worth probably about 600, 700 billion. And uh, it's something I have mixed feelings about because at Moody's, when I worked there, our job was basically to analyze and give an opinion on risk. Mm. And you didn't have to give an opinion necessarily on whether you thought it was Sharia compliant or not. And I actually have a bit of an existential issue with the whole Islamic finance industry. And this is reasonably controversial and people either sort of love me or hate me for this. Um, A lot of the three trillion industry is replicating exactly the same products as interest bearing, debt, loans, credit cards, et cetera, changing terminology. So it's a for me, it's a form over substance compliance with the underlying principles. Mm-hmm. And in that way, it's a bit disingenuous and it actually detracts from the core principles around investing and non-interest based type of activity. And so um, uh, Sukuk is when, let's say, a corporate wants to issue this version of a bond, which is essentially a fixed income instrument. Now, because I have professional and corporate expertise in that area. Um, I focus more, let's say, on the rating side, on the corporate side of things. But because for me, that's, call it Islamic finance version two, um, I'm much more keen on working on Islamic finance version three, which is sort of the more fintech side and version four, which is the crypto and DeFi side, because the idea of investing and partnerships and business is something that before we were limited by technology. Mm-hmm. We couldn't crowdfund ventures. We couldn't finance other people. We couldn't share dividends with 100 people. We, we you know, couldn't fractionalize ownership. With fintech and crypto and DeFi, I think we actually have an opportunity, once in a 500-year type opportunity, to actually move um, halal investing uh, Islamic investing in, away from just copying the existing markets and just focus more on the peer-to-peer investing, on the crowdfunding, on the venture investing, on the asset-backed financing. Technology, I think, can help us get to a, a more sincere version uh, of Islamic finance. There's a lot of incumbents in the industry that will take exception at that statement, but I'm happy to go one-to-one, you know, with anyone that um, wants to challenge uh, on that. But um, so technology is a real enabler, I think, for 
you know, um, Islamic finance version three. And the last thing I just want to say, um, I, you know, I have a mortgage, you know, uh, on my house, etc. When I first came across the concept of Islamic finance, what do you mean interest is prohibited? What's the big deal? I was relatively ignorant of Islam yeah. as an economic model. And then guess what? Uh, Muslims didn't invent it. Uh, 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 Orthodox Christians, Orthodox Jews, uh, Greeks, they all had this prohibition on interest. And um, pre-2008 global crisis, you probably would have had a hard time trying to get people to buy into an alternative mode of economy and finance. You look at where we are today, money printing, inequality, um, uh, uh, fractional banking, it's just, um, you know, uh, monetary policy has gone crazy that the solution to debt is actually uh, more debt. I mean, mm. if you did this as a person, everyone would say you were crazy. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, you're in a lot of debt. Oh, let me borrow some money to get myself out. No, no, no. It's good. So it's interesting that the relevance of non-interest-based finance that the Turkish call participation finance, I like that term much more. It's much more inclusive. I think has immense relevance for where we are today and the challenges and problems we are seeing around us. Cost of living, inflation, all this stuff that's happening it's a consequence of central banks, monetary policy, all this stuff. And this anachronistic religious orthodoxy of the Abrahamic religions. Oh, no, lending for interest. It's a whole another podcast to talk about monetary policy and interest-based lending. But I think the relevance is really current and technology is an enabler for that. Mm -hmm. how, how do you foresee right now? The, where do you foresee the future of Islamic finance going? Because Islamic finance, when we talk about this right now, even when I first started this podcast, uh, I think a little over two years ago now, alhamdulillah. And one of the things was there were a few players, at least within the Western, North America, Europe markets. And I'm honestly seeing even just over the last year, at least five new players enter the market of Islamic finance, some of them through cryptocurrency, some of them just through the traditional like murabaha and other other methods. And so I'm curious in regards to just this market in general, where do you see this market heading to? And and what what is this telling us when we see all these companies trying to provide solutions to Muslims who obviously want solutions that are halal, that are Sharia compliant? Because this is being more and more addressed, I would say, by most businesses that are looking to tap into this market. Yeah, so look, um, uh, uh... As I mentioned before, I think there are inherent problems about the current form of Islamic finance because, mm -hmm. in, in my perspective, um, as a I'm not a scholar, but I'm a technician, and I've I've read tens of thousands of pages of legal documents that say present their image of one thing, and in reality get you exactly back to the same place as an interest-bearing instrument, mm -hmm. and people. Um, seem comfortable that a superficial formulaic compliance is okay. So I see it growing just by virtue of the demographics in Muslim-majority countries. Um, I don't hold that growth as a, as a success for the Ummah when you're just dressing up, um, you know, a product that you can still get indebted, they can still repossess your house, 
you can still get over levered. So if the substance of of an Islamic bank does exactly the same as a conventional bank, what's the value to society or the ummah? Um, and it's interesting in Western countries where I think the education level is higher. I've, you know, I've been in the back of a tech, in the back of an Uber, going to give a lecture um, at Cambridge in Islamic finance, and a taxi driver who was visibly, I thought, a Muslim ask what I was doing and I thought he was going to say oh mashallah Islamic finance and the guy basically says BS I practically like you know like this is the and he said oh it's just banking but they charge you higher fees and commissions because it's halal so going back to your question I still think it's going to grow I think people are happy as long as somebody somewhere certifies that it's Sharia compliant my 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 um, responsibility is absolved but I really hope and I expect technology to allow the investing side of things to grow. And my hope is that that side goes from being a marginal 10% of the market to 20 and 30. And it's much more, in my view, Sharia mm. compliant. So I hope for the growth to be in that area with technology. I'm, I'm curious, and, 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 and this is really diving a little bit deeper into the weeds here, but what for you would be an example of a more Sharia compliance strategy? Because I know, for example, one of the ways that we essentially position a loan as Sharia compliant is, um, let's say a company will purchase a home, right? They, they wanna get, give you a halal mortgage. So what they're gonna do is they're gonna say, okay, this home costs 500,000. What we're gonna do is we're going to purchase it uh, and we're gonna sell it back to you, let's say at 700,000, right? Which is, as you mentioned, kind of like the similar to what you would eventually pay if you were paying interest on the property. It would be, a, we would divvy up the payments and then as you pay, the property slowly becomes in your ownership. If there's any issues there, we still own the property kind of thing. Now, that's generally what I've seen in the market so far. Is there a different approach that you would suggest that you think is more equitable, is more just? Yeah, the problem is um, the the sort of what I would propose to be the more Sharia compliant approach doesn't align with human nature of of greed, mm -hmm. right? So nobody buys a house thinking that the price is going to go down. Mm -hmm. So you buy a house and maybe it's ninety ten at the beginning, and as you say in a sort of reducing Musharaka or reducing kind of ownership type of perspective, over time you own more. Mm -hmm. But that means if you, let's say you manage to get to 50-50, if you sell it, that means you give 50% of the profit to the bank and 50% mm -hmm. to yourself. And you know what, as a human being, no, 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 I want to keep all the profit. Now, in a strict, in my perspective, in a strictly halal mortgage, well, no, 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 you, you, were, you were sort of, joint venture partners in the ownership if you sell it at a profit you sell it you share it with the guy but similarly in a bear market if it crashes the the the, the bank should share the loss with you mm -hmm. so that's a more halal i would say approach when you're putting together a back-to-back -back instrument that says actually what i'm doing is giving you leverage to buy a house if it does well you take all of the profit and if it does badly you take all of the loss, you're back, you know, it's, it's, it's not really the strictly the halal approach, but as a human mm -hmm. being, you don't want to give up the upside and you, um, you know, in a perfect world, you give, you'd share the downside, but you'd keep the upside. So I, you know, it's one of those things where you can't have your cake and eat it. If you had a system where it was like that, you wouldn't have these 
housing crises because the bank would never lend you a property that they thought was overinflated. That's the subprime crisis. If these yeah. were all genuine Musharaka type financing, no one would have lent you because they were going to share the downside with you. And it would be a natural break on house prices. It would keep things more stable. People would be more sensitive to the risk instead of using your house as a leverageable asset for mm -hmm. wealth creation. So the home has gone from being a, a place that you live in to a place that you seek capital gains and investments. So you're commingling. So that's what on a, on a more macro scale under Islamic finance, you might have lower growth and um, lower personal returns, but you, you might have a more stable system. You know, that's a whole PhD thesis right there. But I think the risk sharing aspect just to close brings better governance into the financing. If I'm sharing the risk with you, I'm going to think really hard about financing your property. Mm -hmm. If I'm not sharing the risk with you, you know what? I'll lend you 10 times your salary because if you default, I'm coming after you and tough on you. So that risk right. sharing creates governance in society and governance in the economy. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting perspective that you share here. And let me ask you this to kind of follow up, but not necessarily within the same sphere, because I want to touch upon a lot of different topics. Yourself as an investor, when you are looking at these uh, emerging markets that you mentioned earlier and these companies that you potentially investing, what what is it that you are specifically looking for? Is there something that you've realized Ultimately, this is a common trait that I've noticed across my investments. Generally, I tend to move forward when I see X, Y, and Z. What is it that you're looking for? So um, I'll tell you what I'm looking for now because I've learned some lessons along the way. Um, I will no longer invest in single founder companies. Mm -hmm. um, you've got to have a co-founder or ideally I've got my sort of rule of three that um, because your whole investment can go down if, if, if the guy or the lady, you know, packs up or wants to move on. Um, a founder needs an internal challenge to their viewpoint and perspectives because as an investor and even as a board member, you're not there every day to knock around ideas and challenge them and to make sure um, the robustness of decision making is much stronger with multiple founders. And when you have two even, it, it, it can be hard to break a deadlock. So that's why I've kind of got my sort of, you know, ideally a team of three people um, where if one person leaves, the other two can carry on and so on and so forth. So that's one lesson that I've learned. So no longer single founder enterprises. Uh, the other big for me, a uh, big thing for me is corporate governance documentation. I know it's really dull and it's really boring. Um, if the, uh, the startup has really high quality investment documentation and um, it, and that's an, that's an absolute nightmare because legal documentation can be expensive. Uh, it can be challenging. Um, but nowadays there's lots of template structures, you know, safe notes, you know, stuff that you can almost copy paste. I just chuck your name in and, you know, hopefully it's, um, you know, uh, for me, if it's US or UK template documentation, I don't have to 
overthink it. Whereas if I'm investing in a startup in a, an emerging market, I don't have the domain expertise to evaluate the enforceability of mm -hmm. that documentation. So founders, um, documentation, jurisdiction are, you know, so you can see I haven't even mentioned what the startup is actually doing. You know, it's, it's, it's got to be something reasonably exciting and innovative. But I've got these sort of gates now that the startup needs to come through. And if you've got mm -hmm. these these sorts of gates covered, well, then I'll think, OK, let me see where they are now. Um, uh, mm -hmm. Do you look for do you look for startups that already have their proof of concept, meaning they validated their product market fit? Or are you OK investing in a startup that is a business plan but has not actualized? Well, I mean, then um it would depend on the people because um honestly a business plan typically isn't worth the paper it's printed on like it will not survive the first 12 months you learn things along the way etc um so if the founders are repeat winners then that's a no-brainer if they've done it before or if you personally know the founders and know their commitment if you know their ethics if you know their mentality um, but then it becomes more, you're actually investing in the person mm -hmm. and you're hoping that based on their track record as an individual or as a, as a founder, they can reproduce. And I've got no problems losing money to somebody I know and trust who failed for legitimate market reasons, but, um, losing money because of ethics, because of, you know, corruption, personality, all these sorts of things that, you know, I, I can't sort of handle that. So track record in terms of venture delivery or ethics or personality is, you know, is kind of how I would invest in somebody with a business plan. It's not the plan I'm investing in. It's really the person because you can't really validate the plan necessarily. And you're not going to be there to monitor the plan. Mm -hmm. So you're going to really rely on that individual to follow through better to do your due diligence on the person because I think it's false precision to be analyzing people's plans to the nth degree when things in 12 months time may be completely different. What are the common traits you've seen within founders that are generally successful? And I'm saying generally because success can be defined in many different ways, but within, from your perspective, what are the common traits where you've seen, okay, I see this in you. This is something that I've seen in most successful people. You know, this, yeah, this stands honestly, out to me. I don't think. I have a large enough sample set as yet. I've not been in it long enough. I haven't seen enough exits or enough successes. Like most of my portfolio is still in the sort of angel or series A type stage and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, so um, <clears throat> domain expertise, um, someone that has a compelling advantage like... Um, <sighs> No, I was actually speaking to somebody the other day um, who's got uh, a legal background, a uh, young, young person, you know, uh, uh, the son of a family friend, you know, the father said, oh, look, you know, you, you do this stuff in crypto and NFTs. Can you speak to this guy? I don't understand. And then uh, he told me his sort of plan. And I said, um, why the hell would I buy an NFT from you? What do you offer? Where's your, you know, a lawyer 
fine, it's a great idea. What have you done in this space? And I just look because he's a family friend. I just shot him down. I don't. I don't think there's any. There's there's no value in flattery or indulging. You just got to be harsh, especially with younger people, which is why people call me the chief negative officer. Um, it's necessary. Yeah, and I'm like, no. I, I mean, honestly, nothing you've said leads me to believe I would buy this NFT from you. And the stuff that you've mm. said that you'll do to attract people. And he spoke about this community that they would build. And and, how, and I said, okay, what experience do you have community building? None. Okay, so you haven't done NFTs. You haven't done community building. I said, look, if you want to do something in crypto, you're a lawyer. Blockchain and law, crypto law. Oh, my God. It's a, a ma if you're a lawyer out there, if you're a long young Make yep. sure you put crypto um, into your into your domain expertise because it will be huge. Mm -hmm. And find a product that leverages the stuff you've studied, the stuff that you're involved in. Play on you your know, strengths. Yeah, mm -hmm. play on your strengths. Um, that's not to say you can't switch, but I mean, don't come to me, right? Um, you know, if you're good at something, a natural leverage um, in your area. So that's one, and just ethics hard work i mean um if you know somebody had to you know really work hard to get where they were you know um immigrant background you know challenged backgrounds uh you know those sorts of backgrounds had it way harder and if they've managed to get themselves and i hate to focus on academia but if you've managed to get yourself into a good school or a, or a good firm typically and you're from a more let's say underprivileged low-income minority sort of background you might have had to work harder and that that's your non-corporate track record that shows you know what i did what i had to do to get where i can so i can do that again and i can do that again mm -hmm. um so that's and maybe, maybe that's my bias as the son of a of an you know of immigrant parents who did the hard thing and then gave me everything and then I did the hard thing. So maybe I have a bias towards that background because I understand it better. But you know, that's just personal. I appreciate you sharing that, brother Khaled. And I have a question for you that I ask most guests that come on this podcast. One of my favorite questions to ask. And it has nothing to do with Islamic finance or with startups or with investing. But I do want you to reflect on maybe the journey that you've been through to get up to this point. If you could revisit yourself, the younger you, maybe the 18, 20 year old you as at the cusp of adulthood, ready to enter and embark on this journey of life officially, right? Um, and you could tell him one thing that he could hold onto throughout his journey that will maybe make it a little easier, maybe some lesson, some piece of advice, some words of wisdom that he could hold onto. What would that be for you? What would you tell him? Um, <laughs> so, and this is going to be a bit cynical, unfortunately, don't project your own sense of integrity, honesty, and ethics on everybody you meet. So where I have come undone is that you meet somebody with a, you know, uh, uh, strong background, strong this, strong that. And because you are an ethical sort of moral type person, you figure uh, everybody is like you. And then guess what? Unfortunately, in this world, I don't know whether it's 50-50, 80-20, but 
Um, but that naivety can get you into trouble. Uh, so um, it's a bit sad to be a more of a cynical person than and I think I was probably more idealistic when I was younger. And I've, I've, I've learned through some, let's say, poor decisions that, um, you know, you need to be a bit more cynical, a bit more disciplined, mm. a bit less idealistic um, about the environment around you. And I think caution would sort of serve you, serve you better. Um, mm. That's 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 the, the main thing I would. Is it that you feel like throughout life you've been in situations or maybe certain instances where you were taken advantage of or simply the other person didn't reciprocate uh in, as you mentioned in terms of their honesty or integrity and that caused they deal to far th to fall through or caused the situation where you felt like you got yeah, the short no, end no, of the it's, stick it's, it's more general than that look people are wired differently now everybody probably has their own internal wiring depending on how you were raised your peer group um you know for me like most people my parents were a huge influence along with um um, fictional character Captain John Luke Picard, <laughs> you know of the of, of of the Enterprise and so on, and um, things that you think are obvious about conduct and, and 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 behavior and business and so on, people don't see things the same way. Some people are relationship driven, some people are transaction driven, some people are ethically driven, some people are altruistic, and so everybody has a different complex set of agendas and motives and um you tend to project what you are onto other people as opposed to maybe spending more time and assessing and that can lead you to make decisions that are maybe um uh, uh inappropriate or overly risky or overly you know conservative it can go in both directions mm -hmm. but just just be mindful of projecting your own experiences on values on people that you're engaging with. And actually, if I can give a second tip, if you're in a situation where you feel you're using your personality too much, phone a friend, get someone who has nothing to do with your um, business, your venture, your transaction, and get them to come in and say, this is what I'm up to. What do you think? Cold to the story. And obviously they need some domain expertise, but definitely always get a second opinion. And ideally from a person who doesn't, um, who's not a sycophant, you know, is not shy, likes to give you a hard time. You know, your best friends are the ones that come at you head on, face to face and tell you stuff you don't want to hear yeah. rather than not trying not to rock the boat. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate you sharing that, Khaled. This was an absolute pleasure. I honestly enjoyed every minute of it. I wish we could dive deeper. I think we could probably stay here for another two hours and I would love to unpack all of your brain. I might have to request for you to come back on this podcast. I think I probably will. Um, but with the time that we've had, I just wanted to share my deepest gratitude for yourself, you know, joining me on this podcast, sharing with me all of this value and this information. And I'm sure that my listeners have enjoyed it just as much as I did. One thing that I do want to ask you before we wrap this up, inshallah, where can people go to connect with you? Uh, where do you want to, where do you want people to go? Is there a certain call to action that you want to give? Um, where, where I want them to go in terms of their lives, their business. <laughs> well, I would say, with? well, usually because, uh, I mean, that's a good question. I would love for you to do that, but that, that would probably take a bit too long. Um, where would you want them to go in terms of connecting with you? Or is there a business yeah, you're so working the, on where you can get link, support or link, LinkedIn, 
um, okay. is the is the is the main forum where I'm active. I tend to post a lot of stuff there, not just about the, the stuff that I do in terms of venture, but in terms of social concerns, uh, whether it's like world peace or monetary policy and all sorts of other stuff. Um, don't be too optimistic about um, getting my time. I have at the moment cognitive overload. Uh, 100%. Between day job and stuff. But look, connect. Um, I'm quite at this time focused on crypto and DeFi. So if you're doing something in that space, you'll probably get more of my attention. Um, you know, crypto, DeFi, fintech. Um, I think it's uh, a game changer. But that's a whole, maybe that's a separate podcast. We can 100%. go into like, a lot of crypto. And, and stuff. Yeah, I would love to actually. I would love to hopefully have uh, another session with you in the near future, inshallah. But Jazakallah so much for joining me today, for sharing with us so selflessly your wisdom, your knowledge. I really appreciate the time you've given us. Jazakallah khair. Thank you very much. And As-salamu And guys, remember... In this podcast, if you've enjoyed it, go ahead and review and rate the podcast and subscribe if you haven't already. Every week we release an episode on Tuesday. Go and follow us on Instagram or YouTube or any channel that you're on. And until next week, take care, guys. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.